You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Bible, if you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 14, I will tell you up front, it is a bit front loaded on my first point, so we will camp out at verses 6 and 7 for a while, and we'll touch on the rest of the text. There's one thing I love to do, and that is water ski. But something else I love to do is to teach others to water ski. Let's face it, watching others water ski is fun. Teaching others to water ski, that's hilarious. It is a priceless moment, and I have been able to do that many times. When I teach someone to water ski for the first time, I'm generally pretty optimistic. There are a few obstacles people have to deal with. Uh, If they are pigeon-toed or or duck-footed, that can be a bit of a challenge. Um, Because there's one piece of advice that I give them in particular that they need to take note of, and that is that their feet need to be parallel. It is important that their feet are parallel when they first learn to ski on two skis. If your skis go out, you do the splits. If your skis go in, you face plant. So it's important to stand fast. And I tell them, keep your feet parallel, crouch down. You really can put your, your, uh, your, your elbow inside the knee on both sides. And if you do that, I've seen people fall to the side, flip back up, fall flat on their back, they come back. It's great. I can take you at least a good football field length if you'll just watch the form and do what I say. And generally, I'm pretty optimistic. By the end of the day, you will at least be able to ski a little bit. Um, And so that's just one of the things I enjoyed. But the main part is to keep your feet parallel and to stand firm. And the reason that's important is because I know something that they don't know, and that is that they're about to experience a lot of pressure on their feet. A lot of pressure. Because the boat I'm using is a boat that's as old as I am, and it is a ski nautique with a Corvette engine inside with 280 horsepower. And it is a tiny boat with a lot of horsepower. And I know what they don't know, which is it is not a question of whether or not they're going to come out of the water. The only question is what's going to happen next. For sure, you will come out of the water. But will you be skiing or will you face plant? That is the question. And that is hilarious to watch. This morning's text, though, there's a familiar theme of standing firm and the need to stand firm because of the pressure. Like skiing, where you have a wave of pressure that hits you in a moment, the moment I hit that accelerator, 
life has a way as we go through it of putting pressure on us. And in this text this morning, an understanding to the context of 1 Peter, the context is suffering. Life is hard. Particularly life is hard for those who were scattered throughout Rome in a time where Nero was the emperor and people were being lit as candlelight for his garden parties. He was a very wicked ruler who was very cruel to Christians and the persecution was going to only intensify. And especially as we're at the end of 1 Peter and it is not a question of if persecution is coming, but just to what extent. And it's in that pressure as we go through life and it's 1 Peter in particular, he doesn't want us to be caught off guard, but to be ready to stand firm. And if there is one piece of advice from the book of 1 Peter, I believe it would be to stand firm. If you would look with me to verse 12, notice this theme here being mentioned. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting, declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He gives us this, and it is a command. It is an imperative. And as one commentator notes, that every command is rooted in the indicative of who God is and his character. So every command is based on his goodness and grace. Everything is rooted and grounded in the grace of God. And this command is to stand firm because Peter knows it is one thing to start off well. It is one thing to understand and to begin, but it is another thing to finish. And he wants us to understand our salvation well, that we might finish well. And he gives us, at the very end, a few commands. Three in particular commands to help us to stand firm. If you would, we'll read through our text this morning. Look at verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we approach this text, I pray for help. I pray for your wisdom. I pray that I would make much of your son this morning. Would you consume me with zeal for your son, that we might make much of him, Lord, 
help us to understand these commands are not you being harsh, but they are rooted in your grace. What would we come away with a bigger picture of who you are? What would we come away today with some confidence and being able to stand firm, not in our own strength, but in the strength that you supply? Amen. Where I want us to focus on this morning is as we look at these three final words from Peter, we need to understand these are essential to helping us to stand firm in our faith. They give us necessary encouragement, instruction, and also hope. And it's interesting that St. Augustine was also asked once, what are the three most important qualities in a Christian? And he's being asked the question, and it is a question that in part, we might say Peter is answering. What's the most important quality in a Christian? What do we need to have in order to stand firm? It's interesting, his response. Number one, humility. Two, humility. Three, humility. Those are not our three points this morning, but I think it's interesting that he starts off with humility, humility, humility. He saw it as the most important quality in a Christian. And perhaps that's why Peter starts with this first. So if you would, look at verse 5 and 6 as we'll talk about what is humility. I think it'd be interesting if this morning I had canvases to hand out and would ask each one of you to paint a picture for me of what you think humility is. It's interesting that even to this day, when we Google humility, there are at times paintings, and they're paintings from what's been and happened and recorded in the scriptures. It's grounded in the word of God. And as you think about what you might write this morning, is what you think about what you might paint, think about who you would paint, what you would paint. How would you describe humility? Humility is difficult, especially today, where it's often misunderstood. It's often thought as even a temptation of ours is to think that those that are humble are weak those who don't really take care of themselves so much that they become a burden to others. But that's not a true definition of humility. It's in this text that we actually see the definition of humility come out. He's going to define it for us. The question we need to ask is, what is Peter thinking about? What and who does he have in mind when he said, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another? It's interesting, just previously he was addressing the elders and then he started to address the young people, but then he kind of opens it up. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. I remember that I had someone preach on this text when I was in seminary and I highlighted the shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being example to the flock. And then I have underlined next, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I have an arrow drawn down that says, pride is the downfall of the elders. And I'm mindful of that. 
But it is interesting here how he opens it up and says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. It's for all of us. No one's excluded. And what's also interesting is as we define this and we think about what this means, it means to put on or tie. This phrase, clothe yourselves, though it is not limited to just simply the, what we are putting on with what we see in our clothing or our apparel, it is not just external, but it is also internal. It is a picture of one's character, of one's attitude, of one's heart. But it is interesting that in Peter's day, an apron which you would put on was a distinguishing thing between a slave and a freed man. That apron meant a lot. So I think it was pretty significant when Jesus put on an apron and got down on his knees and began to wash the disciples' feet. In that moment, the unthinkable happened. When Jesus associated himself and would cleanse their feet, so much shocked Peter that Peter initially said, no, Lord, do not wash my feet. But Jesus reminds him, look, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. First, Peter's like, okay, head to toe, wash me. He's like, no, you're missing the point. But the idea in the text and even what he's doing, he's giving them an example to follow. And we know from the life of Christ, he didn't just cleanse their feet, but he went to the cross so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him and would repent from their sins could be cleansed from all their sins and be given the righteousness of Christ. He would go to the cross and that was an example of humility. It was not simply something that he was willing to put on an apron, but it was inward as well. And so when we think of humility, it is both and, internal and external. And when you understand that, then you understand that it cannot be taught and demonstrated fully in isolation. There are great books written on humility and reading your word, the Bible, is a wonderful place to go to hear from God and to learn from his example of humility. But you cannot cultivate and develop humility in isolation. It is developed. It is cultivated. It is not just taught but caught in community with one another when you serve one another when you love one another sacrificially as Christ himself sacrificed and gave up his life for us. Humility is no small thing. It demands much from us. I think this is the picture Peter had in mind was the moment that Jesus put on an apron and washed his feet I think that was a moment in time he would remember forever as he set an example for us and then later would go to the cross. If we need to clothe ourselves in humility, we are going to need 
to serve one another. And that means that we need to put others first. That means that we need to have our eyes open to see the needs of others and meet the needs that we might not even feel like we're the best gifted to meet. But we meet that need because we can and because we're trusting in a strength that is not our own, but in the strength that God supplies. Humility is developed in community. Jesus did that perfectly. Look at verse 6. It doesn't just say to clothe yourselves, but he also says, humble yourselves, a command. It says, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This mighty hand is actually what we talked about last week, and it's sort of a comparison between the strength of Pharaoh and the mighty hand of God that we talked about last week as God allowed the Egyptians to chase after Israel only to destroy Israel as the Red Sea that was opened would then collapse on them and he would destroy and defeat their enemies. We talked though about the fact that God doesn't just simply want to deliver us from our enemies, but he also wanted to save us with salvation. And this would be a reminder here of the mighty hand of God that not only delivers us from our enemies, but the mighty hand of God of salvation. And last week we talked about the Father who secures that salvation. This morning, though, we're thinking of how do we stand firm? How do we continue and finish well the salvation that we've received in Christ? And now how do we live that life that would be honoring to him? And he says, first and foremost, humble yourselves. And it gives us the purpose. Why humble ourselves? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. We get really excited about this exaltation. But we need to understand that this may be now, but often is not and may be later. There may be a partial fulfillment of now, but most of the commentators say that this is a suggestion of what will happen when Christ comes again. And so this is a, something that is not yet, but later that he will exalt us in due time when Christ comes again. But what Peter's doing here is he's amplifying our need to humble ourselves before God. And if you look at verse 5, right, we see God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The fact that he is opposed, this is a picture, right, of his opposition towards enemies. Those that are proud, he is fundamentally opposed to as if you are the Egyptians and he is fundamentally opposed to you because you're the enemy, chasing after his people. And so he takes our pride very seriously. And this is even in itself another word picture for us to understand. This paints a picture for us 
John MacArthur talks about the fact that this is painting a picture for us of God standing on one side of the battlefield and the enemy on the other. And when we're proud, we are that one on the other side of the battlefield. So we can't afford to be proud. Verse five reminds us that God hates the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It is important though for us to note that God's deepest desire though is not to stand against us or in opposition to us, but his deepest desire is to extend grace. But without humility, there is no grace because we don't see our need for his mighty hand at work in our lives. And one of the ways in which this shows up is the fact that when we refuse to come to him with our anxieties, we refuse to cast our anxieties on him. So note this next part in verse seven shows how this humility is going to affect not only our relationships with one another to love and serve, but also affects our relationship with God. Verse seven says, casting all your anxieties on him. And what we see here, Peter's command to us to cast, not some, but all our anxieties on him. That's significant. All our anxieties. Sometimes we feel like I'm only gonna bring to the Lord what I think are the biggest ones. When it says all our anxieties, he cares about all of them, the big as well as the small. And this is where we see Peter's instruction couldn't be more clear with what to do with our anxieties. He tells us what to do, how to do it, and why in this verse 7. First, what are we to do? We're to cast. We're to cast. This depicts a decisive and energetic act. It means to place upon and in Peter's day, this was where one would um, throw a, a blanket onto a donkey and it would just rest on them. The idea is that if we would take our anxieties, this is what we do sometimes, and knit them into a blanket and we cuddle in them, <laughs> say, no. But if you could take all your anxieties and knit them into one piece of cloth, he's saying, cast that. Notice what's being said. My wife reminded me of this earlier. He says, cast it. It doesn't say to, to you know, set it down. It doesn't say to lean upon it. But we're to cast it. Just taking note here of what the text is saying. In other words, we're to get rid of it. It's a decisive and energetic act not to hold on to this but to cast all our anxieties. And on him, it says, how are we to do that? We're to cast it on him. It couldn't be more clear. And you might say, why? And this is the best part. Because he cares for you. Because he cares. This is the solution. This is the cure. This is the antidote, some say, to our worries, is to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you, because of his love for you. Non-Christian, 
If you're here this morning, what do you do with your worries? What do you do with that weight? Do you understand this text and what it's saying is that you are not meant to carry those worries? You are not meant to carry those anxieties. And Christian, when you refuse to cast your anxieties onto him, that is your pride. And sometimes we would rather cast our anxieties on another rather than casting them on him. That too is pride. One of the best ways we can be a friend is to say, have you gone to the Lord in prayer? Let's do that together. Because this is bigger than you or I. The first word that Peter hones in on is humility. We're to remember to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Secondly, there's a need that's developed here in the second command and the command of resistance. We have need for resistance if we are going to stand firm. One commentator notes that worry is condemned, but watchfulness is demanded. I love that. That transition's helpful for us. Worry is condemned, but it doesn't mean that we can be passive. We must be watchful. Look at the text. Look at the beginning words of verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. This is the person who in the midst of a storm can remain calm and collected, unlike the disciples who tend to kind of freak out a little bit when the storms got big and forgot that God was in the boat with them and could calm that storm in a moment. We're to be watchful, it says. We're to resist him. These are the words. Be sober-minded, be watchful or alert you might have. Resist him, it says. Firm in your faith. I remember a moment where I had the opportunity to practice being sober-minded and watchful. I worked for my uncle, and uh, it was a great experience. If you ever get to work with your uncle, it's always something good that's going to happen. And uh, I remember this moment because my aunt walked in, and I could tell she was uh, quite dissatisfied with something. And she... Uh, would refuse to go home until it was dealt with. So my uncle brought myself into the car and said, let's go, let's take care of this. On the way there, I could kind of tell, I don't think he was all that excited to help out with the situation. She didn't want to come back home because there was a bat in the house. And he wanted my help and assured me he has not one, but two tennis rackets. So we do this together. And essentially what we did was I was surprised by the fact that I could scream so loud like a girl while I was trying to hit these bats. But the fact was my uncle's scream was higher pitched than mine. And we just kept exchanging these pitches until finally we numbed this bat and the dog took care of the rest. It was an opportunity though for me to practice being sober-minded and on alert. And I just, I just, the thing was fast and it, it freaked me out and I didn't, it just unfrazzled me. But I bring up that because Peter reminds us of our adversary and it's not a bat. Look how big it is. It's a lion. 
And so our need to be sober-minded, our need to be alert is real. We must be careful because we are not fighting against just any adversary. There is an evil force at work. And we're kind of reminded of this in our need for resistance. As Christians, we fight against flesh, but not just against the flesh, but also against the devil and his schemes. And there's also the pressure of this world. There's much pressure upon us, be it our own sinful flesh or the world or the devil. But it is interesting in this text as he talks about our need to stand firm, he mentions our adversary, the devil. And it's a unique way in which the devil is talked about is in this text in a way that it is not talked about anywhere else in Scripture. And that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter doesn't give us this command without also giving us this necessary motivation. This isn't some hypothetical situation. Peter himself knows what it's like to be hunted. It's in Luke 22. You don't have to turn there. But Luke 22, 31, 32, Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But notice what he does. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter knows what it's like to need to be sober-minded, to be alert, to be caught off guard. And it was after Jesus was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter would deny Jesus three times and fall under the pressure and give in to sin, and he would fail to resist. And his faith was shaken, but not destroyed. Peter, and this is the beauty, right? When Jesus prays, his prayer is answered. A hundred percent. Peter was given grace. Peter was given much grace to stand firm. He was restored. And we don't have time to look at the whole life of Peter, but there is much we can learn from and understanding the need for resistance is real. It is interesting that Paul, like Peter, gave the same advice in regards to resistance. In Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Note the emphasis here, though, on God's might, not our might. On his strength on the Lord's strength, on the armor of God, not our own armor that we create, but it's the armor of God that he has uniquely appointed and given to us so that we may be victorious in standing firm. Humility, resistance, 
and grace. These are all three things, three parts, in a sense that play one song on how to stand firm. Let's look at verse 10. Just notice how beautifully verse 10 describes the grace of God and its sufficiency for us. It says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, if you want to stand firm this morning, you need to remember the humility that is quite possibly the most important quality in a Christian. You need to remember the importance of resisting against the evil one, understanding that even Jesus, when tempted, was not caught off guard, but was watchful, mentally ready. And what did he do but put the word of God into practice? It is one thing to say that we believe the word of God. It is another thing to implement it when we face resistance and turn to the Lord in prayer and model the example of Christ's humility towards others and his love and service. Lastly, we need to remember to lean hard on the grace of God. There's three questions I want to give you, and they're not on the screen, I apologize, but three questions that I think help put this text into practice. Number one, what are you doing with your worries? Think through that honestly. What do you do with your worries? Who do you take them to? Are you casting them on the Lord? What do you do with them? How are you practicing humility towards others? Another way to word this is how are you serving others? Also, how do you see yourself daily resisting the enemy by leaning on the grace of God to stand firm? Do you lean into it? His favor, his word, all the graces that he has bestowed upon us. Resisting isn't easy, but God's grace is enough. It's important to remember. As in closing, I want to talk about Thomas Cranmer. Two articles I'd commend to you, one by Nathan Busnitz, uh, my history professor uh, at the Master's Seminary who wrote on uh, Thomas Cranmer and his uh, death. Another one by John Stark and his complicated death of Thomas Cranmer. It was 466 years ago that this man, an English reformer, who was well known for his failure to resist in a very key moment, he watched two of his friends burned at the stake. Hugh Latimer 
and Nicholas Ridley. One of them died very quickly because of the smoke that caused him to pass out. But the other, it was very slow and it was a painful death. As he watched both of these and in the coming months, there was pressure put upon Thomas and much fear and doubt creeped into his heart where he finally in writing recanted what he had in his entire life's work. He refuted in one moment, signing off and submitting to the authority of the Pope, denying of the five solas. It was noted by Bloody Mary, and Buzniz points out that one of Bloody Mary's greatest trophies throughout the persecution that she led was the fact that Thomas would recant in his writings. But it wasn't enough that he would just simply recant in the writing. They wanted it to be publicly known. So it was on March 21st, 1556, that he was led to the university church where he was to publicly recant before a large crowd. And I tell you this story because this is the moment where in the midst of his failure to resist, God's grace was enough. It was sufficient because in that moment where he was to publicly recant before a large crowd and his manuscript was known, he would deviate from that script and he would say this, I come to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than any other thing I've ever said or did in my life. And that is the setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth, which here now I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand, which were contrary to the truth, which I thought in my heart, written for fear of death to save my life. And then he writes this, just in case there's any confusion. He says this, and as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. Okay, that right there was enough for the whole room to erupt with chaos and anger and they would lead him immediately to the place where Hugh Latimer and Ridley had just died just a few months earlier, they would put him on that same stake. But it was in the moment of his public, not recanting, but proclaiming of the truth, that it's in Christ alone, in grace alone, to glory to God be alone, in faith alone, that he would say that because it was my hand that betrayed me, I will put my hand in the flame that that part of my body might be destroyed first. And it was in that that he would be true to his word. He would put his hand in the flame. He would let his hand be the first to be destroyed. He would stand firm 
and he would, with his last words as it's recorded, say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's quoting from Stephen. I see heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Humility, resistance, and grace, these are the three necessary things to stand firm. But I think the most important of the three, perhaps the most important phrase we would say, because I don't want to undermine the importance of humility, but it's this phrase, the God of all grace. I would underline that in my Bible, the God of all grace. This phrase is only used here. There is the phrase, the God of all comfort, but this is the phrase, the God of all grace. Grace is simply favor. But when we talk about God's grace, we often say that's unmerited favor. It is undeserved. And what is so sweet about this truth the God of all grace that Peter's highlighting for us is he wants us to see that God is the source of grace and the giver of grace. And would it be this morning that if you're here today and you've never looked to his grace, that you would do that? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.